Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. We are recording this a little late in the day and are still processing what we think of the week and what specifically happened to Facebook. As you likely saw, it revealed yesterday that it lost daily users for the first time ever, which the stock market seemed to deem a very big deal, all caps, as its shares plunged 26%. That wasn't just Facebook's biggest one-day drop ever, but according to Bloomberg, the biggest wipeout in market value for any U.S. company ever. Can it bounce back? Can it find more souls to suck into its ghoulish clasp by focusing more on short-form video, which seems to be the plan? We'll find out. In the meantime, let's just zip through a couple of the week's stories before we get to our weekly interview with the founders of Acme Capital. Nike filed suit yesterday against StockX for selling NFTs of Nike's shoes without Nike's permission. Nike claims that this practice is, quote, likely to confuse consumers and create a false association between those products and Nike. As the Wall Street Journal notes, the lawsuit comes less than two months after Nike acquired Artifact, a virtual sneaker company that produces non-fungible tokens. There's no doubt that Nike sees money in them that are NFT hills. According to blockchain data company Chainalysis, sales of NFTs topped $41 billion last year, a figure that would be even higher if digital collectibles minted on blockchains other than Ethereum were also included. StockX has not commented on Nike's lawsuit, but experts didn't see the makings of a strong defense. Although Douglas Hand, a New York lawyer who works with fashion and lifestyle brands, likes the fact that each NFT corresponds to specific Nike shoes that StockX is selling, Jared Goldstein, a New York lawyer and co-author of a book about the sneaker business, told the journal that StockX's rights to sell Nike shoes likely did not extend to minting and selling corresponding NFTs. Nike seems to be taking an increasingly litigious line to the technology realm. Just last month, it took aim at another digital darling, claiming that Lululemon's recently acquired Mirror Fitness device violates Nike patents dating all the way back to 1983. Given Nike's history of litigiousness, taking on StockX is no BFD to the Oregon-based sneaker king. And that could be bad news for creators of NFTs. In other news, certain VCs who tweet a lot have grown edgy of late, with some of the most powerful people in the industry lashing out in ways I haven't quite seen before. Two of these people are Chris Dixon and Mark Andreessen, who've begun well, bashing people of influence who question whether the promise of crypto or blockchain-based collectibles or of decentralization is overblown. The most prominent battle began in late December with billionaire entrepreneur and Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, who tweeted to the 6 million accounts that follow him, quote, you don't own Web3. The VCs and their LPs do. It will never escape their incentives. It's ultimately a centralized entity with a different label. Let's face it, there is some truth to that conclusion. Andreessen and other crypto-forward firms like Paradigm and Pantera do have a financial stake in some of the biggest platforms out there, and that's fine. Very possibly, those platforms wouldn't exist without the firm's support, and very possibly, these platforms will become more decentralized over time, as their early investors will argue is the case. Either way, Dorsey's tweet might not have garnered nearly so much attention as it did if it didn't launch a war, which is what unfolded next. First, Chris Dixon responded to Dorsey, telling his 700,000 followers, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. 
To some extent, Dickinson is right. For years, Anderson Horowitz was thought to be on a fool's errand because of the resources it poured into crypto founders. Now, the joke is on everyone who wasn't dedicating a bigger slug of their time and money into those same people. As a reminder, the firm's investment in Coinbase alone was valued at $11 billion the day the crypto exchange began publicly trading last year. But it didn't end there. Dorsey wrote back to Dixon. Mark Andreessen then waded into the conversation to insult Dorsey an estimated two dozen times, and things have continued downhill from there. Alas, the vitriol no longer appears reserved for one-on-one conversations. Yesterday, a former guest of this podcast, Bobby Goodlot, tweeted to no one in particular, quote, I'm a huge crypto bull, and I think art NFTs are stupid. Surely some who saw the tweet agreed, while others did not. Yet suddenly, Dixon, who has 10 times Goodlot's 70,000 followers, retweeted the comment, writing above it, Can I short Bobby Goodlot? Before a horrified Goodlot could respond, Dixon blocked his account. Dixon appears to have since deleted that comment and another insult directed at Goodlot, whose father is a former congressman, that read, Quote, my parents are billionaires and I lucked into crypto, but now I'd like to trash hardworking founders who work their way up. The question begged is, what is going on over at Andreessen Horowitz? Is this a new strategy? Have the partners made so much money that, as one VC posited to us earlier today, they are, quote, post-giving a fuck? A lot of people, rivals and journalists, and importantly, founders are beginning to pay attention, certainly, and many find the new tood a little baffling. Venture capitalist Parker Thompson, who tweeted yesterday after Goodlot's flap with Dixon, seemed to sum it up best when he wrote, quote, there seems to be something in the water over there that's making people lose their damn minds. It's not a bullish sign for the portfolio. Up next, our interview with Haney Nada and Scott Stanford of Acme Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. Findem turbocharges talent acquisition with AI from search to hire. Hiring for engineering leaders who have seen a company from early stage through exit? Let's find them. Hiring for account executives who have worked for multiple unicorn companies and made President's Club? Let's find them. Only find them lets you search by what matters and uncover the top talent no one else is finding. Search like never before, engage without limits, and make amazing hires with find them. Try find them at www.findem.ai slash strictlyvc. That's F-I-N-D-E-M dot A-I slash Strictly VC. Up next, our conversation with Acme Capital, an early stage venture firm that's run by industry insiders Scott Stanford and Haney Nada, and just closed two funds totaling $300 million in capital commitments. The two, who live in LA and Menlo Park respectively, invest in a wide variety of startups. They've bet on a robotics company that's solely focused on tunneling through hard geologies, a startup whose clinics provide primary care exclusively to women, and a digital automotive radar on a chip company. But candidly, we were more interested in talking with them about what they're seeing in the market now and what they view as the next frontier of VC. Here's that conversation. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We have with us Haney Nada and Scott Stanford of Acme Capital, and they are going to be talking a little bit about their newest fund and some of what they are seeing. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Connie. Congratulations. You have a $300 million 
fourth fund. I'm a little bit confused because I know you have a flagship fund and also an adjacent opportunity fund. So is this 300 million all encompassing? Yes. The 300 million is both the main fund and the opportunity fund. The main fund is about 240 and the opportunity fund is around 60. Okay, great. I saw that you also invested about $155 million through LP co-investment vehicles over the past year, which is a lot of money. Can you explain that as well? Was that the number of SPVs that you formed? Yeah, it's definitely part of our core strategy to partner with our LPs. We have a small fund, which is by design. It allows us to focus on the early stage investments. And then we scale up with co-invests and direct invest SPVs with our LPs. So you're correct. There was that additional 150 or so million that we did through SPVs last year alone in 2021. We've done over a billion of SPVs and directs with our LPs in the franchise. So it's a nice mechanism that allows us to accordion up for scale. When you say a billion dollars, that's exclusive of your funds. That's correct. Wow, that's incredible. So can I ask, I guess, of that $155 million, how many SPVs does that account for? I think it's three or four, if I remember right. Yeah. And and have you talked about what you were backing, what your LPs were so excited about? So SPVs, unlike funds, aren't announced. They're all within our portfolio. So it's basically set up to pick up the winners. Typically, the SPVs come in Series C, Series D, sometimes slightly earlier. And it allows our LPs, those that are inclined to do so, to kind of cherry pick the winners. In terms of what they're excited about, well, you know, they're excited about results. And we've been fortunate enough that a lot of our portfolio companies have been outperforming, frankly, expectations. And so a lot of times they just follow the performance. But then from a trends and themes perspective, our LPs, as most LPs, are quite sophisticated and stay current with trends and themes just like we do. And you see that their interests align pretty closely with ours. I'm wondering... Do you charge the LPs for every SPV? It depends. It's really case specific a lot of times historically. In some cases, we just have them go direct. In other cases, we charge a little bit of a fee and carry if we do a lot of work. We've spent a lot of time trying to normalize it because as you can imagine, it is a decent amount of work to pull together all the investors into a single vehicle. And I would say the economics reflect how much work we have to do and how unique the access is. Can you comment on who your LPs are? Are they strategics? Sure. We have a, actually a great mix of LPs. We have family offices, pension plans, high net worth individuals, which are part of the family offices, a couple of foundations. So it's a good institutional mix of LPs, very much traditional venture capital looking LPs. So just to be clear, Acme began investing its last $181 million fund in 2019. And so the funds prior to this were under the Sherpa Capital brand. Is that right, Scott? Or did I miss a fund in between? No, that's right. We're on fund four. So this fund that we just did, the 21 Vintage, is fund four. And you are correct that we started under the Sherpa brand and then evolved into Acme. All of the Sherpa portfolio companies are under Acme's management. Let's talk a little bit about what you have been funding. I saw that you are interested in new platforms, for example. And I feel like some of the new platforms that we're hearing about, obviously, tie to the so-called metaverse, cars as a platform. So could you tell us a little bit about what you think are going to be platforms for the next five to 10 years? Sure. So both Scott and I have seen many platform transitions going back from the mini computer platform to the PC platform. Then we saw the internet, you saw mobile. 
these are big major shifts in technology adoption and usage. I think we are about to see another one going from mobile to something else, whether people call it Web3, sensors everywhere. That's typically what we like to think about when we're making the investments in the landscape. Scott and I always like to look to the future for investments. So what's going to happen instead of what's happening? Things like real applications of blockchains, using utility tokens, for example, healthcare 2.0 or frontier tech on healthcare. Space, Scott loves enterprise solutions for space. There's lots of interesting sub-themes around the platform shifts that we're seeing. And so I think you'd expect us to continue to be ahead of the pack in terms of areas of what we like to invest. I did happen to see that one of your investments is Forte. So Kevin Chu, who co-founded it, was actually on the podcast not too long ago. I thought that was interesting. How interested are you in blockchain-related deals? And also, are you guys structured as a registered investment advisor so that you can have flexibility on that front? Yeah, we are an RIA. So that makes it really easy for us to do the SPVs and other secondary purchases that we do from time to time. On Forte and Kevin, I've known him for a very long time. He's definitely a repeat entrepreneur that we'd like to back. I do think the utility side of the blockchain is really interesting to us. That's probably where we're spending most of our time. We're looking at different sectors around art, physical assets, gaming, I think gaming is probably the easiest for us because we've both been investors in the gaming space for a very long time, for the last 20 years. I think it's got a very unique utility in gaming, and I definitely think it's going to be a major shift from free-to-play gaming, which has been rampant for the last 10 years, to utility-based tokens and NFT gaming. So we're very excited about that. We've got a couple of investments in this space. We're looking at probably four or five. There's probably going to be one announced in the next couple of months in this sector as well. What firms do you typically run up against? Are you playing in the same space as Future or are there other firms that you see? There isn't any specific firms that we see. We're actually very cooperative. We tend to like to work with other VCs, especially VCs that we've known for a long time. And so we actually tend to do multi-handed deals with other Series A investors. Scott, do you want to? Well, I guess the only thing I'd add just leveling up is we kind of have an off-Broadway strategy. We kind of run away from hype for better or for worse. And we hear this interestingly from our LPs where they look at our portfolio and they say, well, you have an additive portfolio to other things they're seeing. So that gives us exposure to all sorts of different LPs. It's not like we see the same cast of characters all the time at the table. We have this unique mix of frontier tech and disruptive business models as the two North Stars for us, if they're two North Stars, in terms of guiding our investments. And that leads us down some super interesting paths. So guys, you have been in the business for a while, as you mentioned. And so, of course, you know, serial entrepreneurs like Kevin. I'm just wondering, what percentage of your companies are led by first-time founders and how are you finding them? Maybe if you could talk a little bit about your deal flow. So from a deal flow perspective, it's all pretty much network driven. I think it was like 70% of our investments or so in the last fund were all from founders. It doesn't necessarily mean they're repeat founders, though. Some of our best successes have been first-time founders. So I would say that we're open-minded to work with any founder. We have to see genuine passion. We have to see the signals that suggest they're going to be able to run through walls and obviously alignment in terms of not only vision, but culture. So those are some pretty big boxes to check. But yeah, we work with all sorts of founders and coming in early Our sweet spot is kind of that late seed Series A. We are a roll up your sleeves, get involved, take board seats, go fight the dragons together type of mentality. And as you've noted, we have been around for a while. I was looking at the combined 58 years of experience between Haney and myself, which is frightening. Actually, get this, Haney and I's relationship 
predates the iPhone. So I met Haney back when he was at Glue Mobile trying to sell pixel-based feature phone games. <laughs> and, and I was like, what is this? Were you at LookSmart then? No, no, no. I was, I was at Goldman. So yeah, so I had this big role of global internet, whatever. And it was after Goldman had abandoned the internet along with everybody else post-bubble, which kind of you obviously remember well. So I was brought in as like this operator guy who understood the internet to come and figure out what Goldman should be doing in, in rebuilding the internet practice. And I was literally running around globally from China to Moscow, taking companies public and ultimately investing in them. But I met Haney at Glue, and there was this mobile thing that made no sense to me because I was just focused <laughs> on what was then dial-up and ISDN and broadband was a dream. And I was like, wow, this guy clearly is the man, clearly gets it, clearly is a visionary. And we stayed in touch since then. And Scott, by the way, was not, I mean, yes, he's a banker and he had a, the suit on and a whole bit, but he was more interested in the product and the strategy of the products and the games and licensed IP. So he was the only banker that actually asked about the product versus the other bankers were like, well, what are your numbers? So I knew right away we'd, we'd get along well. Guys, I did want to ask, just so the founders listening and reading know, what size checks are you writing at the late seed Series A stage? It's a pretty wide range. I think our ideal sweet spot is somewhere between five and 10. We've written checks as small as one and as large as 15. So that's kind of the range that we like to play. Yeah, your $1 or sorry, $1 million check comment goes to the earlier question, Connie, about partnering. The last thing we want to do is elbow anybody. That's not our strategy. It's not who we are. So if there is a seed or a late seed and a fund would love to have us in early, we'll put a million bucks in. We'll put half a million bucks in. We have that flexibility. But as Haney noted, what we're really looking to do is, is write that 5 to $10 million check, take a board seat, and begin the journey from early stage to IPO. As looking at our stats, we've done some crazy number of companies from early day to IPO. I think it's 27, Scott. 27 companies. It's frightening. I'm working on a story right now about VCs going earlier and earlier, almost to sort of a comical extreme where they are approaching operators in companies who've maybe not expressed any interest in becoming a founder, but who the VCs think could be a, a founder. I'm wondering if you're seeing that and also just what you think of that trend and if it's really necessary. I mean, it, it's certainly gotten crowded at the seed and series A stages. I think it's crowded in every stage. There's so much money that's come into venture in the last five years. It's got to go somewhere. And I think that's one of the symptoms. I think it's going to be difficult to find great places to deploy capital as a venture capitalist. And that's why I think you have to be picky. You have to be early. You have to think a little bit out of the box. I think there's way more capital in the growth stage, frankly, than there is in the earlier side. I think we have a little bit easier time in the early stage. But for us, we like founders that have passion around the problem they're trying to solve. So they have to come from the problem and they have to have a solution and be passionate about trying to solve that solution. What is the most bleeding edge investment you have in your portfolio right now? Well, it's funny. One of them was bleeding edge and now it's mainstream, which was Brain Trust. Talk about off-Broadway. Adam is a repeat founder. He founded Doctor on Demand and then he created Brain Trust, which is a DAO focused on the labor marketplace. So a decentralized ownership structure on what is historically a heavily burdened marketplace. He went up and down Sand Hill Road. And I don't think anyone went past the first meeting. We knew Adam. We trusted him. He's a brilliant guy, obviously. And we said, look, we love you. We love the concept. We have absolutely no idea how to think about valuation. So 
we'll take a flyer. We partnered with a crypto fund that helped give us some comfort in terms of understanding crypto. Long story short, that is now doing 40 million GSV, 20% month over month growth, working with Goldman and Nestle and Porsche. It's kind of incredible. They just announced earlier this week a fee converter tool that allows the Porsches and Goldmans of the world when they hire talent through the Brain Trust network to put 10% of their fee back into Brain Trust, which means Brain Trust then repurchases tokens with that 10%. So you have this super interesting ongoing demand of the token, which should drive the value over time. And this idea of a fixed supply token means you don't have future dilution. So our head continues to blow up when we try to figure out, okay, it's got a billion dollar quote market cap today. How do we think about that in traditional valuation terms? And it's very, very difficult. So that that has become mainstream, but it still is pretty bleeding edge. And then Haney's, I know, has some cool frontier tech. Well, what I was going to say is that both Scott and I tend to be early, early in our thinking of the sectors and the spaces we want to invest. Brain stress is a great example of that. But Scott also did Uber before anyone knew what ride sharing was and everybody thought it was a taxi app. We did IonQ in 2003 before quantum computing was mainstream or hot. And then obviously a year or two later, it became hot. And now IonQ is a public company. We thought we were going to hold IonQ for 10 years before seeing liquidity. When you invested in Brain Trust, then did you get equity in the company and then the right to purchase a proportional amount of tokens with that investment? Or how did that work? No, we actually just bought an option to buy tokens. Now, if it ended up not playing out like Adam had envisioned, then yes, it would have fallen back into some sort of traditional equity model. But no, there was never really a cap table. It was just an option to buy tokens if at some date they were going to be issued. And obviously they were listed and it worked. How much of your capital is going into tokens? Is that like a really nominal amount? Yeah. I want to be clear that we're not arbitraging. We're not playing the currency game by any stretch. So as Haney said at the beginning, we look for real world applications of the blockchain. And we've done now, I think, three investments like that. And we're looking at quite a few others. We don't have a hedge fund accumulating and arbitraging ETH versus Bitcoin or anything like that. That's not what we do. And as far as the answer to your question, it's been, if I had to guess historically so far, 10% of our capital that we've invested in the last couple of years has been somehow connected to blockchain. I think the best way to think about it is we look for business models that are being enabled by the blockchain. And it doesn't matter what the investment vehicle looks like to us as the business model is the one that's really the key. What other far reaches of the venture ecosystem are you exploring? Tell us about what you're doing in space, for example. Yeah, space is super interesting. So we have Astra. It's now a public company and just successfully reached orbit about a month ago. They just announced yesterday that we're going to hopefully get an FAA license to launch out of Florida on Saturday. So tune in Saturday morning. It's super interesting. We look at these platform shifts, as we were talking about earlier, with three phases, infrastructure, enablement, and applications. And you can kind of apply that framework to internet, you can apply it to mobile, you can apply it to any sort of shift, you can apply it to the metaverse. And where we are with space right now is we're kind of in this back end of infrastructure moving into enablement and just starting to see applications. And we're comfortable investing in any of those three stages, although each one comes with its own consideration. So as far as space is concerned, obviously building space infrastructure is extremely capital intensive. 
and we're a small fund. So when you think about how to reconcile that, we have to be kind of thoughtful when we do infrastructure investments, more thoughtful maybe than we are with applications, which are less capital intensive. So in Astra's case, we loved it because it was a very low cost approach to deployment or launch. Astra's vision and where the industry is going goes well beyond launch. And they have talked publicly about extending into enablement layer, in particular around enterprise. So that's something that we find super interesting. The build out of enterprise in space, right now we've seen a lot of focus on consumer with Starlink and Joyrides. But we think as we've seen evolve in both internet as well as mobile, enterprise is a huge opportunity when it comes to space. So think cloud, think communication, storage, all the same parallels we've seen terrestrially. I did want to ask about Astra as it relates to SPACs. You have a couple of exits from last year that went public through blank check companies. Haney, you mentioned IonQ2, the quantum computing hardware and software company. Those SPACs both have fallen meaningfully. I saw that in IonQ's case, the shares were trading at $31 in November, and now they're $11.50 a piece. Astra was $20 when it went out and now it's $5. I don't know if you have any thoughts general or specific about those companies and whether public shareholders don't understand them. Relatedly, I'm just wondering if you think we're going to see SPACs in the same numbers as we have in the past, because it does seem like a lot of them are not performing so well for the retail investors. Well, we've been part of a number of SPACs in the last year and a half or so, uh, starting off with the DraftKings SPAC success, which actually probably activated the entire sector. I think it's an interesting alternative to regular way IPOs or even direct listings. I do think it gives access to capital much more quickly. I think you're able to have a lot more flexibility in terms of how you talk to the street. So I do think it is another great alternative for companies to gain liquidity and gain access to public capital. However, just like the IPO market, you have good companies and you have bad companies accessing the liquidity. I remember back in the day when IPOs, the window would shut because a number of not very good companies would go public and all of a sudden they would miss the first quarter out of the gate. And then institutional investors would say, I'm done with IPOs. I don't want to do anything for a while. And so all the good companies would have to wait until the quote unquote window opened again. But I think the same thing is happening in SPACs. And I think there will be continued to be a filtering of quality names and quality SPAC sponsors. I do think it's a, it's a great alternative for companies to gain liquidity and to raise capital. But I think institutional investors and retail investors have to be very, very careful, both the SPAC sponsors and the companies that are going public and accessing this medium. Yeah, I remember having the conversation with the Astra team when we went down the SPAC path, along with the rest of the board members, Craig McCall and others. And we said, look, this is a unique opportunity to be a public company at this stage and frankly, to capitalize the balance sheet in a way we otherwise might not be able to do in the private markets. but we are in inning three of realizing our vision. And it just so happens we're going to be doing that in the public eye. And the public, as we've seen here recently and know well, thinks more on a quarter by quarter basis, not by a year by year, three years, five years out. And we said our stock price is not going to reflect necessarily the potential of this business going forward. And we just have to be ready for that volatility. And have to make sure employees appreciate that fact. We are obviously very bullish on the future potential of Astra and IonQ and DraftKings and others. And you can see that by the fact that we stay on the boards and we stay very involved. It just so happens they're going public earlier. I was on CNBC a while ago and banged heads with Andrew Sorkin about this because I said, all in all, it's good to get more private companies in the public markets. You can say what you want about SPACs and all the fees and how bankers are making out like bandits and 
sponsors aren't adding much value, all those stones that people throw. But at the end of the day, you're getting more supply out to public investors that otherwise, historically, have just been held back behind the curtain. And the growth investors have been absorbing all the alpha. So I think it's a good thing for public investors. Now, whether or not they should buy at the IPO, that's a decision they need to make. And frankly, probably think about it from a portfolio perspective as opposed to stock picking. And as you know, the the public market tends to be fickle. A year ago, they were looking for growth. Everything had to have growth. And that's why a lot of these companies were able to make it public. We were able to do a SPAC because investors were looking for growth. And the only place to find real growth right now or was is in the late stage venture capital game, in the growth equity game. Most public companies were not growing at fast because they were sizable before they went public. Well, the market sentiment has shifted in the last three or four months. Instead of growth, now they're looking for profitability. So the mantra for all the companies is profitability, winning and be profitable. And that's why I think you're seeing pretty much a wholesale slash evaluations of all the unprofitable companies out there. Now, market sentiment may shift again, but we just don't know when. Nahini, I also just wanted to ask you, you co-founded GGV. You made the firm's first investment in China and served as a managing partner of the firm until 2016. Has Acme made any overseas bets? And are you interested in China specifically? In 2016, my mood on China started to sour, largely because of geopolitical reasons. They've become obvious today, but back in 2016, it wasn't so obvious. There was two things I really was passionate about. Investing in early stage venture, working early with entrepreneurs, mentoring them. That's something that still to this day drives me. Um, It's the reason why I get up every morning, sitting down and trying to solve a problem with an entrepreneur. And that's not geographically located just in the United States. It's worldwide. One of the areas, because of the geopolitical issues that I think China has and will probably continue to have until something changes, is Europe. There's a lot of interesting frontier tech technology companies in Europe, and there has been for the last two decades. But much like Israel was in the early days where there was a lot of great technology, but not very good go-to-market strategies in Europe. And now I think Israel solved that, and you're seeing that with all the investments that are going to Israel. I think Europe still has yet to solve the go-to-market strategy. So it's really interesting when we spend time in Europe, all the interesting companies, all the great entrepreneurs, great technology hasn't really been formed into real products yet. And it hasn't been formed into a great go-to-market strategy. We're just starting seeing the early phases of that. And so we're spending a lot of time in Europe. Actually, one of our partners, Christian, who was a former operator, actually one of the CEOs of one of my portfolio companies, Heptagon, has joined us as a partner and is actively looking at investments in Europe. He's based in Copenhagen. Scott and I and the rest of the team, Alex and Ike, are spending time in Europe also looking for opportunities. So I do think Europe is going to be an important place for us, and hopefully it's a quarter of the portfolio. And Scott, I'm sure you're tired of talking about this, but Sherpa, the brand, sort of ended ignominiously, I guess, with Shervin leaving in 2017. Are you still in touch with him? Also, I'm just wondering if he's an investor in your fund. Yeah, no, he's not an investor in the fund. And we cut all business ties when he resigned and moved to Miami. So we don't have any business connectivity. I do hear from him from time to time. He's still quite active. He's very active in Miami. But no, he has no connection or affiliation with the franchise. Guys, it was really a pleasure getting to talk to you. Congratulations on your fund and your momentum. And I would love to stay in touch and see where you're continuing to invest that capital. Great. Yeah, thank you, Connie and Alex for the chat. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.